sermon text today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. All right, preschoolers, y'all can make your way out. I can head with Miss Stacy and the crew. Everyone else remaining in here, I do want to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, continuing our series through the book of 1 John. I hated to run out there at the end. I needed to get my mic, and uh, I was going to leave after confession, but I really needed to to sing that song. I needed to hear you sing that song over me. Uh, this week has not been the easiest week for me, and I, I needed to hear those words. I should come to Jesus. I should come to Jesus. I, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear you uh, exhort me in that. It was, it was really refreshing. So I stayed, I sang the song, I ran out to get the mic, come back, we're all good. But uh, as I was walking out, I was like, man, somebody's probably like, who's preaching today? <laughs> Pastor leaving, um, the sermon about to start. Um, but that's, that's why. First John chapter 2, if you are newer to the Bible, First John is a book of the Bible. It's toward the end of the Bible, so you can start in the end and, and make your way back We are walking through this book verse by verse. It's our typical preaching practice here at Trace Crossing. Um, We are in 1 John 2, 18 through 27. And today, you are so privileged that you get to be here today. Today, we're going to learn how not to be an antichrist. That's what we're going to learn today. Yeah, yeah, I know. You woke up this morning and you were like, you know... I've been considering becoming an antichrist, and I don't know if I should or not. Let me, let me encourage you not to become one, okay? So that's what we're going to learn today, how not to become an antichrist. Sound fun? Yeah, let's do it. Um, now, if you've heard the word antichrist um, before, if you haven't, if this is new to you, then bless your heart, you're in a wonderful place. I'm so thankful that you don't have stuff you've got to work through. For the rest of us that have heard that word growing up in church, um, you may need to resist the urge to get out your end times charts, 
you know. Um, you're going to have to resist that urge. You're going to have to resist the urge to dust off the Left Behind book series, you know, and, and, and uh, movie and all that. You're just going to have to resist that urge. You're going to have to resist the urge to start predicting which current world leader, you know, is going to kickstart the end of days. Just, just resist, okay? You're just looking right now. You're like, who are the presidents around the world right now? Who looks like an antichrist? Hmm. And you're thinking, no, we've we got to resist all of that. Now, if you remember, whenever we first started this journey through 1 John, we talked about why this letter was written in the first place. And we've actually finally come in the letter itself to John telling us why, why he wrote this letter. He's writing this letter because of a doctrinal issue that had arisen in the churches in Ephesus. And so John was one of the pastors there at the church in Ephesus at one time. And so now he's writing back to these churches because there's a dilemma, and it's a doctrinal dilemma. A group of former church members in Ephesus had started believing and teaching that Jesus was not the Messiah. It's as clear as that. Um, they left the church, and they didn't just leave the church and go to another church down the road. It's not how it worked back in the olden days of, of you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus uh, walked the earth. Back then, if you left your church, you left the faith. Because it was probably the only church around. So they left their church, they left their faith, and John is finally addressing them here, and he refers to them as antichrists. Now throughout the Bible, we do find descriptions of a figure who will one day come as, as an antagonist, an opponent to Christ and his gospel, whose presence would signal the end. And we, we could spend time you know, debating the different positions on the Antichrist. Paul referred to, to this, this man of lawlessness. But instead of tracing all those different positions on the Antichrist, I want us to focus instead on how John uses this word and what he means by it in the context of 1 John chapter 2. John says, Even though there is an Antichrist who is coming, verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Even though there's an Antichrist who is coming, there are many Antichrists who have already come. This is the point that, that John is making. So now, many Antichrists have come. Um, for the purposes of the letter, John uses the word Antichrist to refer to anyone who denies the truth about Jesus. That's an antichrist. Don't complicate it. Anti-what? Christ. <laughs> antichrist. Against Christ. Someone who denies the truth about Christ. That's how John is using it here. So there's a group of Christians that were in the churches, that were members of the churches at one time. They left and they started believing and teaching that Jesus was not the Christ. They are antichrist. I'm not making this up. You can see it in our reading. We'll get to it in a minute in the verses that... Bryant read for us. Over the past few years, um, we have seen a trend of people in the church leaving the faith. It's it's a little concerning. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I haven't looked at the statistics on it. I don't know if it's any more prevalent than it has been at any other point in history. But because of social media, there's there's more awareness of it. Um, 
And sometimes this begins with something that's been referred to as deconstruction. If you've heard of anyone, it's usually a millennial or Gen Z thing. They're deconstructing their faith, going through a, a, a phase of deconstruction. And, and what that means is that, you know, usually in light of a new experience, a new relationship, um, maybe, maybe something just clicks in a different way, maybe they hear someone teach, but, but something happens, the person starts to rethink their belief system. And, and to be honest with you, they, they will begin by asking really good questions. Why do I believe what I believe? That's, that's usually how deconstruction starts. Why do I even believe this? I've been going to church with my parents for a long time. Now I'm kind of on my own. I'm still going to church, but I think I'm going to church just because, I mean, I'm in the rhythm and the habit of it, and it's Sunday, and I don't have anything else to do. But why, why am I even doing this? Why do I believe this stuff? Do I even know what I believe? That's how deconstruction starts. Is that a bad question, by the way? That's a great question. We should all ask that question. Why do we believe this? Do I know what I believe? Awesome questions. And then they'll ask, why am I even a Christian? And then they may ask, is Christianity even true? Again, these are good questions. And they start to deconstruct. You, you can see it. They take, you know, each brick of the building and they're taking it down and re-examining it. And does it need to go back or does it need to be tossed away? They're, they're deconstructing their faith. Now, for some Christians, this process actually leads to a healthier, truer, and better faith. Because maybe they were believing some really wacky stuff, and it needed to be deconstructed. It needed to be weeded out. Um, for others, it eventually leads them to leave Christianity behind altogether. And it can be very startling, and it can be pretty disturbing when someone we know as a Christian abandons the faith. It's sad to me when any Christian leaves the faith. It's disturbing to me when someone that I know as a Christian, I know them as a Christian, when they leave the faith. That has a different effect on you. Even when you don't know the person, though. I know James and I have talked, there's a podcaster that he and I both kind of appreciated, and, and we were like, the way that he approaches uh, Christianity and faith was, was challenging to us, and we, we would listen to him from time to time. And, and one day I read that he had left the faith. That he was no longer a Christian. I didn't even know the guy. I just kind of occasionally listened to his podcast. And it, it was startling to see that he, someone who was a believer and that taught things, was no longer in the faith. Do you know someone like that? Have you had this experience before? See, I, I don't know about you, but for me, the most disturbing feeling I have when someone I know or I'm familiar with leaves the faith is that I might be next that's that's the scary thing to me I know this person is a faithful believer been in Bible studies with them I've seen I've listened to them teach if they can leave the faith who's to say that I won't leave the faith one day who's to say that I won't stray Who's to say that I won't stop believing? That's, that's, a scary, that's a scary feeling. In our passage today, we're going to encounter two different groups of people. I'm going to simplify this, this, this passage that we could take in a bunch of different directions. Two groups of people. Those John calls the Antichrist, who deny Jesus and leave the church. 
and the true believers who John encourages. And they know Jesus and they remain in the church. You see, there are two characteristics of true faith or true knowledge of God in this passage that can give us assurance that we are true believers and not antichrist. There are two things that we need to do to not be an antichrist. You ready? Two things, two steps. First, we have to know Jesus for who he really is. And every word in that, in that point is important. We have to know Jesus for who he really is. And second, we have to keep believing. Know Jesus for who he really is, and then we have to keep believing. All right, first, we have to know Jesus for who he really is. Um, I, earlier this week, I was, I was reading the results of a survey from Ligonier Ministries called the State of Theology. This is a survey that they do, uh, I think, I believe they do it every other year. And it's essentially, uh, Ligonier, they, they are a ministry down in Florida. They partner with Lifeway Research, which is, you know, an SBC institution. They partner with Lifeway, and in their words, they, they take the theological temperature of the United States. So, uh, you know, I don't know exactly uh, all the parameters or how they actually conduct this survey, how they end up with all the, uh, you know, data that they have. I could send it to Paige. Maybe Paige could, like, help, help me understand, you know, how they get to where they get. But um, they, they essentially send out uh, surveys. They have all these different theological statements in the survey, just a big, long-running list of statements. And you either, if you're taking the survey, you either agree with the statement or you disagree with the statement. And through that, they're able to generally see what Americans believe and specifically what evangelicals believe. And these, are, these are self-professing evangelicals. These are people who are a part of evangelical denominations. Um, uh, for example, one of the statements was, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Agree or disagree? And so then they would get the results from that. Another one of the statements in the survey was, abortion is a sin. Agree or disagree? Another was, gender identity is a matter of choice. Agree or disagree? And so it's really interesting because you get to kind of see like where evangelicals are generally on some of these issues. And then you get to see the data from years past to see how things are changing culturally. Okay, Two statements in particular stood out as I was studying our passage this week. Statement number three from the State of Theology survey. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. God accepts the worship of all religions. Agree or disagree? 56% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. 56% agreed with that statement. And that's a significant increase from the last time that survey was conducted in 2020. There's another statement that stood out to me. Statement number seven. And here, here's this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Agree or disagree? 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. 43%, which was up significantly, up from 30% in 2020. This is a real problem. 
Because in our passage today, John says, essentially, that anyone who would agree with those statements has abandoned the faith and, in fact, never truly belonged in the first place. I had to ask myself, how can professing evangelicals deny the deity of Jesus and believe that there are other ways to the Father than through Jesus? I mean, how is that not zero? You know, is Jesus God? How can any, any professing evangelical say, of course, of course he's God. Of course, I agree, he is God. Or I disagree that you're saying he's not God. How, how can this be? Well, I think in our day, as there was in, in John's day, it's obvious that we have a doctrinal dilemma in the church. Now, a couple weeks ago, we saw two tests that John gave us to evaluate whether or not we truly know God. And if you remember, there was the ethical test where John wrote, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's the test. You obey God, you're proving that you know God. And then there was the relational test or the love test. And John wrote, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So through our love for one another, we demonstrate that we truly know God and belong to him. And here's where the issue comes in. I think there are many evangelicals who would say, exactly, exactly. What matters most is how we live, not what we believe. You see, I know Jesus, and I know I know Jesus because I live like him. I love like him. Our actions matter so much more than our beliefs anyway. And why would we be so dogmatic about what people believe about Jesus? There's some freedom here. There's some leeway. You know, who am I to say that someone is wrong in what they believe? If someone is loving other people, if they're doing no harm, if they're trying to be a good person, if they're trying to follow what God has put in his word, does it really matter what they believe? about Jesus, whether he's God or he's not, whether there are other ways to the Father than Jesus, does it really matter that much as long as we are passing the relational test and the ethical test? See, John doesn't let us off the hook so easily. Because after giving an ethical test and a relational test, he now gives us a doctrinal test. There's a doctrinal test. In short, the doctrinal test shows us that we can be confident in our salvation based on what we believe about Jesus. You see, we don't have the option. John doesn't give us the option to believe whatever we want about Jesus. We don't have the option to be loose with our beliefs about the identity of Jesus. Not if we want to truly know God. And that's the kicker. What we believe deeply matters for our salvation and for the assurance of our salvation. You see, John would refer to the 43% of evangelicals who deny the deity of Christ and the 56% who believe there are more ways to God than through Jesus, not as, oh, just very tolerant, very compassionate, understanding people. He would refer to them as antichrist. There's one major contrast between the antichrist and the true believers in, in this passage and it has everything to do with truth and lies 
orthodoxy and heresy. The Antichrist denied that Jesus was the Messiah. Look, look, what, look what John writes. Start in verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see, in contrast to the Antichrist, John says that true believers know the truth, confess the Son. He says that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So I want to give you a little dose of ins- uh, uh, insurance. I swear, I have no insurance to offer you, okay? Um, <laughs> assurance. Sorry, I couldn't let myself off the hook on that one. Um, <laughs> I want to give you a little bit of assurance this morning. How can you know today that you're saved? How can you know today that you truly know God? I want you to consider what you believe about Jesus. This is the doctrinal test, and it's the simplest of the three. It's, the, it's immediate. I can tell you right now whether you should have assurance or not. Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior King, the Messiah, sent from God to save sinners? Do you believe that salvation comes through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, and only through Jesus? If you can answer yes to these questions, you can be certain that you know God. You can be certain. This this is the doctrinal test. Don't be deceived this morning. You cannot truly know God. You cannot have hope for eternal life if you do not believe Jesus is God and the only Savior. Now, now I, John's pretty clear on that, but I was wondering this week in my study, like, why does it work that way? How can I just so easily give you that test? Do you believe, here's a list. Here's a, here's a survey, state of theology for your own heart. Do you believe these things about Jesus? Yes, 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 yes. You have eternal life. You're good. Why does it work that way? How am I able to to offer you that? Of course, listen, we could nitpick it. Of course, this is within within the assumption that you're passing the other tests as well, right? Like, we we can mark off those things and intellectually assent to truth about Jesus and be a hateful person. And, And what would John say about us? If we hate other people, we're walking in darkness, not in the light regardless of the things you're saying in your head you believe about Jesus, like, obviously. But how are we able to say with with full truth that if you believe those things, you can have assurance this morning? Why does proper belief in Jesus guarantee assurance? And it's, I don't know, it's really simple. Because these truths about the identity of Jesus are really true. It's, It's reality. If your beliefs about Jesus align 
with what is actually true about Jesus, what we find in Scripture about Jesus, what has been passed down through the ages about Jesus, then you can be more confident in your salvation. You see, confusion sets in when your personal beliefs about Jesus come into conflict with the tradition of the church, with with the Scriptures themselves. And you believe something about Jesus, and then whenever you go to the Bible, you read about Jesus, and there's a conflict That's when confusion sets in. When your beliefs align with who Jesus really is, who he is revealed to us as, that's when you can be confident. All we really do when you think about it, all we do when we believe in Jesus is align our hearts with reality, with what's objectively true. What's the story of the gospel? Remember, it's a a history story. It's, it's, It's information. It's a news article. You know, the paper is, you know, it's a headline. Jesus died and rose from, from the dead. And your sins are forgiven if you believe in him. And you have to square with, with the reasonableness of it. Did Jesus really live? Did he really die? If he died, did he really rise from the dead? Did he come back to life? You're, when you believe in Jesus, you're squaring, you're aligning your heart with reality. This is what really happened. This is true. This is who Jesus is. And because he was raised from the dead, everything he said about himself is true. He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah come from God to save sinners. When you believe in Jesus, you're aligning yourself with truth, with, with reality, not lies. John put it this way. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but why? Because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. There is truth about Jesus, and there are lies about Jesus, and there's no middle ground. Jesus is God, or he isn't. He is the only way to the Father, or he isn't. It's not just sloppy theology to say that Jesus isn't the Messiah. It's a lie. That's why John says these are antichrists. It's it's, it's just a lie. That's not true. It's not just a matter of healthy disagreement among believers to say that Jesus isn't the only way to the Father, that he's not the only Savior. That's a lie. And what this means is if you try to believe in Jesus, but you deny his deity, you you deny something about who Jesus is. You say, I disagree, which I always find really interesting, but... Um, I disagree. I know he said he was God. I know the other said he was God. I know the, the witness of the church is that he is God. I disagree. He's not God. But you want to believe in him. You know, you're just not cool with that. Or maybe there's another aspect about the identity of Jesus, who he really is, that you're having trouble squaring with. And so you, you want to leave that out. If you do that, you're not believing in the real Jesus. That's why it doesn't save you got the wrong guy. That's a pseudo-Jesus you're believing in. Pseudo-Jesus doesn't save. Only the real Jesus saves. That's why this is so important. You know, this is one reason that we desperately need multiple exposures to the gospel here. I, I know as you grow in your faith, the longer you've been a Christian, 
I, I know, I'm not naive. You probably come here on Sundays and you are sitting in the welcome and you're like, we know God welcomes us in Christ and we are who we are because Jesus lived and died and rose and we know, we know. Okay, I, I'm not naive. I know that some, there are some mornings, you've had a bad morning, you're a little irritable, the coffee wasn't strong enough, and you're just like, this guy, if he would please just for one minute say something different, you know, I might, I might be helped a little bit. <laughs> Listen, there's, a, there's, there's purpose to this madness. We have to keep confessing that Jesus is the Christ. These people, these antichrists, we see that word, we see the language, and we think awful, horrible, bad, dangerous people. That's not true. I met and, and met multiple times with a person who would fit right in with this group. Fit right in with this group. Trying to join the church. Great guy. Not an evil person. Denied the deity of Jesus. Good guy. Like these aren't evil, awful, terrible people. And here's what why I say that. It could be you and I. We could one day wake up, we could listen to something that is convincing to us. You make a friend, you are compelled by what they say. We need multiple exposures to the gospel, not to indoctrinate us and, and, and brainwash us, but because we need to constantly be aligning our hearts with reality. Unlike John, we are not like eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. If you're an eyewitness, that's a little more powerful. It's kind of hard to like let that go and be like, no, I kind of like this like new stuff they're teaching over here. When you were there, when Jesus died and rose from the dead. like That's a little bit different for us, though. So far removed, it can almost become theoretical. So we need multiple exposures to the gospel. We need to know Jesus for who he truly is. A pseudo-Jesus cannot save us, only the real Jesus can. And so that's why we need to continue to emphasize, to, to clarify, to proclaim the news about who Jesus is. We need to keep doing, we, we've started reciting some ancient creeds. We've walked through the Apostles' Creed, we've walked through the Nicene Creed. I'm not trying to be like hip, like, ooh, they didn't do that in my church growing up, I'm doing something new, you know. Not, that's not the point. The point is those, those confessions, those creeds clearly show us who Jesus is. Listen to the Nicene Creed. Do you remember it? What it says about Jesus? We need to confess this often. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. What you believe about Jesus carries eternal significance. But if you believe the truth about Jesus, if what you know about Jesus is 
who he really is, that he is God, that he is the only Messiah, you can be certain that not only will you not be an antichrist, but that you truly know God. So we have to know Jesus for who he, who he truly is to not be an antichrist. But there's one more thing we have to do. We have to keep believing in Jesus. So, so this experience of knowing Jesus for who he really is can't just be a, just a one-stop shop. Like we just one time, one moment in history, we say, yes, we know Jesus for who he truly is. And then that's the end of it. We have to keep believing in Jesus. In order to not be an antichrist, we have to know Jesus for who he truly is and then keep believing in Jesus. And you have no idea how, how badly I wanted to title this point, Don't Stop Believing. But I, I just couldn't because I would have been tempted to sing and no one needs that blessing this morning. We just don't. Okay, but don't stop believing. Keep believing in Jesus. True faith is not just something that happens once. There's a clear beginning to faith. We hear the truth about Jesus and we respond to it with belief. But that faith has to last. This, this ethical test we've seen, this relational test we've seen, this doctrinal test we've seen. I love what John Stott says. John Stott says there's actually one more hidden test in this passage. And it is the ultimate test. He calls it the ultimate test. He says, future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. One characteristic of the Antichrist in Ephesus was that they had faith in Jesus at one point in their lives, but then later they didn't. They denied him. The Antichrist, they abandoned the faith and they left the church. And John Calvin described them this way. He said, They have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. You see, this was obviously a very troubling reality in the church that John's writing to. So he makes things abundantly clear in verse 19. Look at 1 John 2, 19. He wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Um, the Antichrist in Ephesus had a faith that did not last. That's the issue here. And that proved that they never truly knew God in the first place. And that's why John Stott says this is the ultimate test. Endurance, perseverance, lasting faith. If it doesn't last, it never was. And that's really startling. John Stott, his whole, his whole section in his commentary on this was so, so good, but I took out just one little section here. He wrote, Granted that God intends his church to be visibly manifest, in local worshiping, witnessing fellowships. This does not mean that all of the professing baptized members of the church are necessarily members of Christ. Only the Lord knows those who are his. This is startling. Um, your belonging with God and your salvation are proven true ultimately by your perseverance. Your perseverance. 
John says those who finally stray away from Jesus, those who finally deny Jesus, never truly belong to Jesus in the first place. So, so the opposite must also be true. Those who last, those who remain, those who keep believing in Jesus will prove that they always belong to Jesus. This is the ultimate test of whether we know God or not. You can know you truly know God if you keep on believing in Jesus. Now, if you're uncomfortable with John, don't, don't shoot the messenger. Jesus said the same thing. In Matthew 24, he offers this warning. He's speaking of the last days or the last hour. And he wrote this, or he, sp- he said this. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This idea is repeated by Jesus in Matthew 10. He says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, Obviously, we know why it's necessary to have a faith that lasts. And if you don't know, you will soon. We, we need a faith that lasts because life is really hard. Life is really hard. And there are plenty of reasons. Never a good one, never a val- valid one, never one that, that will get you off the hook or justify the choice. But there are, there are many reasons to leave the faith. Personal suffering. We, we know people who have scaled back at minimum, seriously doubted at minimum, and some that have left the faith entirely because they just can't, they just can't reconcile it. How could this tragedy happen to me and God be good? My experience is more powerful than than my reasoning here. I don't want any part of this anymore. It's too much. It's, it's, too, it's too hard. Um, relational heartbreak, spiritual abuse, you're harmed by church leaders in a serious way. Why would you ever want to be a part of Christianity to pastors harm you? Church hurt, just... Just, you know, relational difficulties in the church. Pastors feel this, you know. Pastors do harm church members. Church members harm pastors. And it can be really difficult. And, and there are days where maybe you've experienced this before, where you're just like, I don't, and not just I don't want to be back at this place, but you're just like, I don't want to be in this environment anymore. I want out. Like, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't care anymore. There are tons of, life is hard. Life is hard. That's why just having, you know, a shallow faith is not enough. We need a deep faith rooted and connected to the suffering servant Jesus himself that lasts. Now, now what do we need to have a faith that lasts? I'm I'm just going to offer two things. One we find directly here in the passage. One that's implied. First, You want to have a faith that lasts in a world like ours? You want to have a faith that lasts in a person who's sinful like you? 
you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You can't do this on your own. You can't stay a Christian on your own. You're, you're not strong enough. I, I'm not strong enough to stay a Christian on my own. I have to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, he, he encouraged these believers, and he said, contrasting them with these antichrists, he says, but you, but you, have been, you're different, he's saying. You're not like them, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You've been set apart. You have been empowered. You've been, the, the Holy Spirit himself, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, has been given to you. To you. You see, perseverance on our end is preservation on God's end. God preserves everyone he saves. We see this very clearly in a couple places in Scripture. Romans 8.30. You can turn there later. I have it here. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see what Paul's doing? Are you following his logic? He's saying, God is the actor in all of this. At every single point in your salvation, God is the primary actor. He's the one who's doing the work. He's the one who predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. God's the one who called. And those whom he called, he also justified. God's doing the justifying. And those whom he justified, he also glorified takes us from his his gracious choice to his gracious persevering power until the end where we will be glorified and the whole thing is a work of God's grace and then we see in Philippians 1 6 Paul writes here I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ this is our only hope guys we can have a faith that lasts because of the God who keeps. Our faith can last. It can remain. It can endure. Because our God is a God who keeps his people. We have a faith that lasts because of the God who keeps. So we need the Holy Spirit. But we also need the church. You want to last? You want to have a faith that remains? You can't isolate yourself. You can't, you can't do this on your own, meaning you need the Holy Spirit. You also can't do this alone. You need other believers. You need other Christians. The accountability of the church helps us have a faith that lasts, that endures. We have to have a faith that lasts and endures. This is the ultimate test. So how can we have a faith that lasts? We need the accountability of the church. The church is structured in such a way to help us persevere. And I'll give you a few examples. Worship. You know, back, back in the olden days, the 90s, you know, um, I remember going to church. It was the same way, in, you know, back in the 1800s when Mr. Tommy was going to church, you know, back, back in the, um, but back in the day, um, you, you know, like if you didn't go to church, you'd get that call, you know, or if you didn't show up to Sunday school, you'd get that, you'd get a letter in the mail. Show did miss you, you know? And, and half the time, you know, it'd be like, oh, man, they were gossiping about me the whole time I was there. But we've lost that. We've lost that. Where it's, it's not just like, 
man, we really hope you guys come to church Sunday. Instead, it's like, you better come to church. What are you, do- what are you doing? Why aren't you at church? You need to be here. Just because some people have taken that in legalistic directions and somehow connected your church attendance to your salvation doesn't mean it's bad for us to expect one another to be at church on Sunday mornings. It should be an expectation. Why? We need to be here so we can keep believing in Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table, as, as, we, as we proclaim God's word, as we sing these truths, like I told you, I had a, I had a really hard week. It was hard. And i got to be honest with you, the first half of the service here, my heart was just weak. And then we sang that song. I needed to hear that song. I needed it. And maybe you're here and there's something that's happened. Maybe it's not the sermon. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it was someone just being kind to you. We need to be here together. It needs to be an expectation. Regular church attendance helps us have a faith that lasts. But we also need the community of the church. We need to spend time together. You know, don't just come and float and barely know anybody here. Get to know each other. Spend time together. The community of the church. As we get to know other people, we have people that will hold us accountable. It's like, you know, you're hanging out. You're saying something crazy. You're like, you know, I was listening to this guy or I was reading this person. And I, you know, they had some really good points. And then someone else there who knows you and loves you is able to say, yeah, but, I mean, I don't know that that squares with biblical truth here. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. You have other people that you're bouncing ideas off of, or you have other people that can just call you out for being a jerk. We need that. We need people that can say, hey, stop. You're being mean. Like, you're whatever. We need the community of the church. It will help us have a faith that lasts. You see, there's a misconception about faith in Jesus. That it has to be really strong all the time. And if it's not really strong all the time, then we're just utter failures. And maybe we're not Christians in the first place. No. We don't need to have the strongest faith. We don't need to have the smartest faith. Maybe you're intimidated by some of the things that we talk about. And you're like, I don't know. I have stuff you're even saying up there. Like, I need a dang dictionary just to get through the sermon. I don't understand. Like, you know? And you feel that somehow that makes you a subpar Christian. Do you see anything like that from John he says nothing about having a strong faith he says nothing about having a smart faith he says what's most necessary what's most important what we need more than anything else is a faith that lasts meaning you believe in Jesus today and you wake up and you believe in Jesus tomorrow and you believe in Jesus the next day and the degrees of strength of the faith it's not in play I don't know exactly where you are in your faith you know you may be in a season of deep fellowship with God And you just have this keen awareness of his presence and his love and his grace and his joy. Or or you may be in a season of doubt and darkness. Where where you feel nothing but distance between you and God. Maybe you're in a stage of of deconstruction yourself. And I want to assure you of something. If you have faith in Jesus today, today, If you believe the truth about Jesus, the same truth you believed about him when you first came to him, you can be absolutely certain that you belong to God. That the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in your heart right now. That the smile and laughter and strength of God is with you. And you can be certain that he will never leave. He will keep you. 
to the end. And so as God keeps, let's stay. Let's remain. Let's do what John exhorted these believers to do. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, what's the exhortation? Abide in him. If the gospel abides in you, you will abide in Jesus. And the promise of eternal life belongs to those who abide in him.